Hello and welcome to NCEA Podcast. This is Kevin Baxter, the Chief Innovation Officer for NCEA, and welcome to the show this week. Redeker Software is dedicated to serving the needs of Catholic schools and dioceses and is a proud member of the National Catholic Educational Association. For over 40 years, Redeker Software has provided the highest level of technology solutions and personalized service to Catholic educators. They understand the unique needs of Catholic schools and provide student information management, admissions, websites, data and analytics, and more. Visit redeker.com to get started. Uh, we are doing um, a quick podcast this week, not quick, a relevant podcast this week um, to address the data brief that came out Monday uh, by NCEA, Catholic School Enrollment and School Closures Post-COVID-19. And we are blessed and honored to have two great guests with us, um, Kathleen Porter-McGee, who is uh, superintendent for the Partnership Schools, and Kathleen Quirk, uh, who is the chief of staff um, for the Partnership. Um, the Partnership is uh, a, a system of schools in, in New York, in Harlem in the South Bronx in New York, and then also uh, in Cleveland. Uh, they've got nine partnership schools uh, within those communities, uh, and they're united by a common approach to teaching and learning, a shared commitment to excellence, and a focus on faith formation and values. And so we are going to use initials, too. They go by initials, by the way. So Kathleen Porter-McGee will be KPM, and Kathleen Quirk will be KQ, just for the benefit of our audience. So thanks uh, to both of you for being with us. Thanks it's great for having to be us. Here. Yeah. Um, so let's start with just the kind of big topic. The, the report came out. I know we've had um, NCA, some folks at NCA, and, and, and both of you had some exchanges about the, about the data and um, a number of different factors. So talk just generally a little bit about the partnership and the impact COVID has had maybe from your perspective and how your work has gone. Um, and we'll start kind of with you a little micro and then we'll get a little macro with it. So um, KPM, do you want to take that to start? Sure. Um, so, I mean, first of all, I'm really excited that uh, you guys at the NCEA are really taking seriously, like disseminating the information, disseminating the data and really helping to inform the debate about what's happening in Catholic education, not just in COVID, but but beyond that. I think it's really important. And I think the data you guys collect is really is really relevant and super helpful. So thank you guys for doing that. Um, when I think about our own schools and, you know, folks ask us this a lot, you know, how are your schools doing in COVID? Um, I feel like it's like a tale of two cities, literally, <laughs> um, because one, uh, you know, our New York network operates in a state where parents do not have access to um, vouchers or tax credits to help support private school education. But then obviously in Cleveland, Ohio, where they do. And so that means that particularly when an economic crisis hits, like the one that, that many of our families are, are facing today, um, the impact on our schools is, is very, very different. And so in New York, um, I should say across all both of our geographies, all of our schools have been have been fully, fully open for in-person instruction. Like most Catholic schools around the country uh, since Labor Day. I guess that's worth mentioning, though it's not going to be surprising to anybody in the Catholic school world that definitely differentiates us from, I would say, sort of traditional public and even public charter schools around the country. But then when I think about the impact on enrollment, which is relevant to obviously this the media brief, 
um, our enrollment in New York did dip a bit, uh, particularly as the economic crisis hit. But our enrollment in Cleveland exploded, uh, where we had an overall increase in enrollment of about 39% in the two schools that we serve. One, I think, had 46% and the other just, you know, just shy of, of 39%. Um, which I think to us really spoke to the fact that particularly right now when Catholic schools are, are really, there's like a heroic effort to, to serve communities and to serve students in person when parents have access to support, to send their kids to Catholic school, they take full advantage of it. And so we've been, we've been really heartened to see that. Um, and it's also helped inform, and we can get into this maybe later, but it's also helped inform how we're approaching enrollment moving forward in New York, even though we don't have access to public uh, public money. Yeah, that's great. Um, KQ, maybe for just thinking about it in terms of um, one of the things the report um, showed that was a, a depressing, I think, for all of us who are committed to this, but the, the decline hit urban and inner city schools most uh, most dramatically. And so those populations that are traditionally underserved, that are that are on the margins already, um, were the ones that suffered the, the largest levels of decline. Obviously, you've got schools um, in those um, in those urban inner city areas. And so just the impact on families that you've seen maybe um, in terms of, of the impact of COVID, but just also the uh, disruption to the, to the general life and education of their kids. For sure. I mean, I think if you're looking at our schools in New York City, primarily they're in the Bronx and Harlem, the median family income for those families is around 30,000 a year. And I think many of our families did have a lot of financial impacts as a result of COVID for both last year and for this current year. And so we set up a couple of different additional scholarship and relief funds that we hadn't had before. One was the COVID hardship scholarship, which families could apply for on a monthly basis to help reduce their parent contribution for that particular month, especially if they were seeing just an uptick in healthcare bills or not able to go to, to work or school um, because of quarantining. We knew that that was going to impact our families and losing two weeks of work if they have a job during that period of time can be really detrimental. So I'm, I'm offering that as a month um, to month reduction was helpful. And then our relief fund was something that our board was really wonderfully focused on raising money to be able to provide for many of our families that had lost jobs or had additional health care bills or even um, care for elderly parents or care for younger children so that they could be able to maintain their jobs. Um, and that relief fund was utilized by many of our families across all of the seven schools in New York. I'm going to ask this question. And I've got a rationale to it. But do you know how the diocesan schools that are maybe in the same communities or similar communities to the partnership schools have done? And and I'll just let me be that's the question. And then I'll frame out why I'm asking, because one of the things that came through in the data report that I thought was um was really interesting was the number of parish elementary schools that declined. Um, that that was a steep, steep decline where you saw independent or 
diocesan governed or other governed seem to be more flat. Now, there are more parish elementary, so there are a lot of factors maybe behind that. But it makes me think about the governance that we've got within our Catholic schools. And, and obviously, that's a, another whole conversation. But, but do you have any sense that the governance system that you've got in place uh, in the partnership schools helps you maybe to navigate some of these um, things that pop up? Um, uh, KPM, I'll just direct that to you. Sure. Um, I think it's an important question. We definitely appreciate the the kind of unique governance structure we have. And essentially, the way partnership schools works is our schools are diocesan schools. And in both cases, the Archdiocese of New York or the Diocese of Cleveland, the bishop or the cardinal has, uh, we have a services agreement with the diocese where the, the bishop or the cardinal has turned over operational and management oversight over the schools. So from a like canonical standpoint, they're technically still governed by the by the diocese, but we control everything else. We are fully financially responsible for them. We control the hiring and firing, teaching and learning decisions. And I do think that uh, I feel really fortunate to have that um, and to be able to serve the the nine schools that, that we do serve with that governance structure. Because when I think of you know, the work of a large urban superintendent like Mike Deegan in New York or, or like Franco Lynn in Cleveland, um, the the just the sheer number of Catholic schools that they're trying to support and, and serve is so much greater. For our schools, we have a we have a manageable number, but we also have a manager manageable number and they are schools that face very similar challenges. And so that means that we can really use kind of, I, th I think, leverage economies of scale to dive deep and, and help support them in really, in really specific and, and unique ways. And so I do, I feel very fortunate for that. And I think that I think that our governance structure does allow us to be a little bit more nimble than maybe if I were a large diocesan superintendent, it, I think it would be a little bit more challenging. Yeah, and what, I, what I've seen too, uh, the parish-based model is the model that that people think about a lot, especially for elementary schools, the K-8 schools in, in the country where, um, you know, historically you had a pastor and, and parishioners would go to church on Sunday. They put their kids in the school. Um, in some parts of the country, you couldn't cross parish boundaries. It was almost like a public school district that you had to stay. Uh, and, and just all the shifts that we've seen over the years, the declining mm -hmm. number of priests, for example, um, and now you've got some diocese where priests have multiple parishes they're they're administering and so wondering just in terms of um a management perspective and, I, and I don't, we don't need to get too much into this but i'm just curious and maybe kq you can talk a little bit about just the the terms of that management piece of the school um uh, versus having a, a pastor um uh, kind of being the person who's ultimately in charge I'll definitely, I'll, I'll tap over to you, KQ, in just a second. One thing that I, and that's a really good point, but I think from a context perspective, one thing that's interesting, right, is that New York actually at, a, at the archdiocesan level moved a, away from that um, around the same time that partnership schools took over our schools, right? So they have the regional system, which is a little bit different. But you're right that the, when you think about the Catholic schools that are struggling, um, that are serving communities that are, under supported and under resources and you've got a pastor who's who is uh you know running a parish that is financially strapped and a principal uh basically the pastor and the principal who are working overtime to try to figure out how to to best support the most vulnerable families that is um 
that is not a recipe for flourishing, right? Because you've got people that are just struggling. It's almost like a, it feel, it can, I, I imagine it can feel like subsistence living sometimes, right? Like where you're, you're just kind of trying to keep the lights on. Um, and I think that can be really challenging. And so one of the things that we say at the, at the network level at, at partnership schools is like, we're trying, we, we think about it as like, we're trying to, what we're trying to do as a network from a, from an oversight and management standpoint is drive down a mountain road that has guardrails on both sides. And on one side, and those guardrails are kind of trying to keep us like in our lane. And on the one side is the guardrail that protects us from just like leaving individual principles kind of to figure it out all on their own. So we try to provide enough support in terms of, you know, curriculum and professional development and also fundraising and financial support that principals feel like they have what they need uh, to unlock the full potential of, of their schools. But on the other side, we, we think there's a guardrail that is, is protecting us against like the creeping bureaucracy of over-centralization. And so I do feel like the, the principle of subsidiarity in Catholic education, I actually think is powerful and beautiful. And we don't ever want to completely lose that, right? So I think that um, so I think that governance does matter, right? I imagine like past the pastor principal model in a in a uh, financially struggling or just you know stretched school, I think can be really challenging. But also, we want to be careful that we don't over-centralize. Um, so, yeah. I think that almost gets to the second point as well. In the brief, talking about how those closed schools and the majority of some of those schools, a lot of them are closing in areas where it's harder to be able to say, okay, we, we need to keep increasing tuition here. We need to keep you know, squeezing more dollars out to be able to keep the school sustained. And then when you're going to your families, you want your families to stay and then the tuition keeps increasing. It's no wonder that some of those schools and those parish schools themselves feel like there's not another option facing them but to close. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating because we used to talk about this in LA. We actually used the book "Cultures Built to Last" by uh, Dufour and Fullen, and their, their concept of balance between kind of autonomy and then control. And we thought about it, and I thought about this when you said this KPM that that it's it's like subsidiarity and solidarity, right? It's the subsidiarity piece where you want the local control and the autonomy to be able to make decisions, but you also have to understand that solidarity tells us we're all together. And we have Absolutely. to understand that we're part of a larger network and that we need to commit to each other and, and understand that piece. And and it's kind of a never-ending push-pull about where's the right spot to balance those two things. But but I think you're absolutely right in terms of a, a sweet spot with that. Well, and we joke, right? We expect to like, you know, it's like we're 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 a new driver, right? And we're bouncing into the guardrails. But as long as you if you as long as you keep your eyes on them, hopefully you can help thread that needle. Because um, I think I think you're right. I like that frame of of subsidiarity and solidarity. Yeah. Um. So another topic that came out, and um, and this is a tough one. I think during COVID, because I think things have put us upside down. But I think it's a really important conversation to talk about, and I'm curious about partnerships uh, approach, but staffing numbers. And and maybe let's not think about it in terms of the, the COVID report specifically, but 
But the basic data is this, that, that in like 1960, we had roughly 5 million kids in Catholic schools across the country. We had about 150,000 total employees. I want to say it was about 2015, I think. We had 1.8 million um, Catholic school kids, so we lost over 3 million kids in that time. We had 152,000 staff, right? So our staff went up even though overall enrollment went down. And I always caveat this with the fact that, you know, back in the 1960s, we sometimes uh, nostalgically remember the nun with 60 first graders in the classroom, which wasn't a healthy totally. thing. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that. The, the, the layer on payroll. Right. So I want to caveat it with that. But I don't think that explains it all. And so I think the question is just, how do we think about it in terms of this declining enrollment that we're seeing? Um, and how do we balance that with appropriate reduction in staff being Catholic and, and obviously coming at it from a pastoral approach? And how have you thought about that at, at uh, Partnership? That's the million dollar question, right? <laughs> um, so I will say that this year, right? So while Catholic schools experienced an enrollment decline this year, I can actually completely understand why staffing did not, why there was not a, a shrink in staffing, you know, a reduction in staffing to, to match that. Because I know in our own, so we, we take a hard look at that every year. Um, and there were, if it weren't COVID, we might have um, made some tweaks to our staffing model. However, in the COVID era, when we, were, when we would have had to make those decisions, it was, it was in July and August. And we were doing everything in our power. We had our, 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 our eyes trained squarely on the goal of reopening schools for in-person instruction. And it was at a time where like most people thought that was insane. Um, and so the idea that we would reduce staff and threaten our ability to, to keep the social distancing guidelines that the CDC recommended, like we just felt like it would have been it could have potentially made things unsafe. So I will say for this year, that indicator is, um, I, I would give everybody a buy for that for this year, because I, my gut is most Catholic school leaders were probably like, this is not the year that I'm going to be reducing my staff and I wouldn't blame them, right? That said, there is no question that we need to be building a sustainable staffing model for Catholic education. And obviously, to KQ's point, the sustainable staffing model is not like one nun with 60 kids. Um, that's not that's not sustainable from a forming the whole child standpoint, right? You're never going to be able to make good on our promise to form the whole child and knowledge and virtue with class sizes that dramatically large. Um, however, it's also not the case that if you are a financially struggling Catholic school, you should not be I, in my opinion, I guess I, I shouldn't speak in shows. In my opinion, it's not wise to sell small class sizes as a benefit because it feels like you're just you're kind of putting the nail in the coffin of your of your sustainability. Yeah, I agree 100 percent with that. Plus the fact that that the research really indicates that class size is not a driver of student achievement. Teacher quality is a much higher driver of that. So we should be able to articulate that clearly to, to parents. Kiki, I don't know if you had something to say on that. I, I totally agree in terms of class size research. I guess the thing, Kevin, that I was thinking about is I agree that it's not everything, but the, the question about how, I mean, I think 
we likely had a pastor, we maybe had a lay principal, and then we had likely eight nuns running K to eight. So I, I do think there are some numbers that would be interesting to disaggregate there. I will say in terms of the urban schools, I think many urban schools run lean, frankly, because they have to. And they just don't necessarily have the money. So then you have merging classes and you'll have a class with potentially 40. I think other schools, it's hard to make decisions where you're letting go teachers. And so I think sometimes we have premature closures because we don't necessarily want to make hard decisions around staffing that we need to make. And I have no knowledge of whether or not that backs us up and the data side, but I think that could be an interesting thing to try to disaggregate as well. Yeah. And one of the things I'm actually working on at NCA is this uh, Catholic micro school model to really think about how do you, how can you run a smaller Catholic school in terms of, and the staffing piece is, is the number one piece. It's the, not the number one, but it's obviously the, the major sustainability piece. If you have to get, you have to get that, that right. Um, so, t- um, I don't want to overstate, but you have an enrollment report coming out. I'll just say that. And you have some lessons in that, that I just want to, um, kind of have you expand upon and maybe talk about a little bit. And one is that they, that you're finding, and KPM will start with you, a strong demand for faith-based schools. And I, I firmly believe this too, that that our, our faith is actually an asset in our Catholic schools. It's the one thing we can bring to the educational environment that, that charter schools can't do or traditional public schools can't do. So we need to see that as an as an asset. And uh, and so talk a little bit about that lesson that you've, you've learned at Partnership. Yeah, I'm actually going to tap in KQ. KQ runs all of our enrollment and has been, um, has had the happy or unhappy task, depending on how much you like data, of like really diving into our enrollment and understanding every single um every single aspect of it, including demand. So KQ, I'd love for you to, to speak a little bit about the work you've done there and, and lessons you've learned. Sure. Well, this year it was obviously pretty interesting for us to have both New York enrollment and Cleveland roll enrollment going on side by side to be able to just see the differences of demand. I think also those differences that we were able to see have led us down the path of potentially changing and really adjusting some of our systems uh, into next enrollment season, which bleeds into our our second point uh, in lesson two, just how do we limit the barriers to entry? I think... um, in both our our New York and Cleveland schools, we do just see that demand. We have a ton of inquiries. And then unfortunately, our inquiries drop off the longer that they're kind of in the pipeline, so to speak. And what we saw this past year in the land of COVID was that we were able to track that 87% of our families that didn't enroll within the first week in New York just did not enroll with us across the board. So having the the opportunity to see how being stagnant in the pipeline for on time, but also the amount of material that we were requesting families to provide, and sometimes vulnerable families to provide 
most recent tax returns for that current year in February. I mean, these are hard things for a lot of us to be able to to put out and put together and then be able to sign up. And I think with so many of those barriers that were in place, um, we've really been rethinking some of the, the systems that we're looking to run for next year's enrollment cycle. And before I was superintendent, I was I was principal at a school in South Central LA. And so we had uh, families that had applied for the foundation, the Catholic Education Foundation scholarship. And I used to think of that process just being such a, a huge barrier in terms of of just the, you know, filling out a multi-page, you know, application and, and just what that what that did. Exactly. And then what we saw in Cleveland, you know, I mean, obviously there's there's a portion that parents need to pay in New York. And in Cleveland, they needed to receive the the voucher to be able to attend school. But the work they had to do on the back end to receive that was much less. And so we saw just enrollment explode in Cleveland compared to where we were on the on a decline in New York. Um, I just want to go back real quick to the demand piece too, because you mentioned the demand was there and then the barriers might have prevented the demand from sustaining itself. Did you feel like demand was because you were a Catholic school? Um, why did you know why parents were maybe thinking about a partnership school versus a charter school, for example, or versus another option? Was it was it the faith based aspect? Was it quality, you know, academic education, safety, all those different factors we know? What was the motivation for the demand? Yeah, I think KQ, you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I really feel like a so in New York it's interesting too because we are our seven New York schools operate in what is arguably the most competitive uh, or one of the most competitive choice landscapes in the country, right? So we have some of the most nationally known, highest performing charter schools in our neighborhoods, right? Um, some of them basically within walking distance of our Catholic schools. And so I think parents are um, maybe more used to exercising choice. Um, and so it is really interesting in that environment to think what draws them to Catholic schools in general or to our partnership schools in particular. And I feel like there's at least, you know, two things I, or three. So one, I do think a lot of folks are drawn to the, the faith formation, even if they are not Catholic themselves. We have a lot of folks who are who are faithful and, and really appreciate a faith based education. I think related to that, but but maybe slightly different the focus on on forming character and virtue that is so explicit and just a part of Catholic education is something that I think parents find really, um, just really important for all the reasons that all of us find it really important. Um, and then another thing in New York that I do think has drawn folks to our schools is um, that we are explicitly not test prep. So there is a culture in some of the of the neighboring charter schools, um, which are, are very competitive and very high quality, but where there is a little bit more of a culture of test prep. And we take a little bit what I'd call maybe uh, a little bit more of a, a, a classical approach to, to education that's really knowledge driven. We, you know, we don't we don't do any test prep in any of our schools. And we're really proud of that. Um, and I think for for parents who have experienced that and felt like it might not be the right fit for their kids, they were really 
drawn to to the alternative that our schools provided. That's great. That's great. Yeah, those uh, again, schools that kind of have that focus. Sometimes I worry it becomes such a utilitarian process that education kind of loses its totally. um, holistic approach to to what it's meant to do. Um, so lesson three was about, um, preschool, kindergarten, uh, and the impact. Um, and obviously this was indicated very strongly in the NCEA data, uh, as well in terms of, uh, I think the overall about 111,000, uh, student decline, about 40% of that was, uh, was preschool, uh, kindergarten. And so, um, you saw similar, similar, um, impacts, um, at, at, um, at partnership too? I don't, I mean, we saw a dip in, in, in pre-K as well. I think the lesson for us there uh, in our enrollment report, which is coming out tomorrow, is um, is that there is, I guess, a couple of things. So one is that the, the enrollment decline that Catholic schools are experiencing this year actually does mirror the enrollment decline that public schools are experiencing as well. So the drop or the decline in, in pre-K and kindergarten both, which together, I think in the NCA report, the, the, the drop in enrollment in pre-K and kindergarten actually adds up to about like 47 or almost 48% of the total enrollment drop. And that's a trend you're seeing nationwide. Basically just that in the COVID era, a lot of parents of young children rather than navigate the possibility of hybrid learning or the possibility of school shutdown, they just decided to keep their kids out of school. And so for us, I think what the lesson is, is there, there is demand to be had. And so as we look to next year, we typically, you know, I think look to, to pre-K and kindergarten as intake years, but I think it's important that we start looking to first grade as, uh, you know, kindergarten and first grade in addition to pre-K as intake years and, and thinking about what that means. KQ, I don't know if, if there's yeah, any Yeah, I just to amplify the point. I don't think that the decline in pre-K and K is unique to Catholic schools. I think pre-K and K we've seen has been declined from the 2019 numbers to this year's numbers as an effect of COVID. I'm not saying that we are absolutely going to get all of those students back. I sure hope we do and more, but I just think that not putting it in context with the decline in public schools for the same age group, it kind of gives you the impression that like, okay, we're, we're not going to be able to make this back. I think the question is all of those students or many of those students are staying home this year. How are we going to get all of them back in school next year? regardless of which school. And I think just if I can amplify too, I, this obviously animates both KQ and I, right? Which is exciting because I think it, it speaks to opportunity. And I think one of the things that we're looking at is like, where are the opportunities for growth? And so I think if you pair lesson number three, that that the drop in pre-K and K is not indicative of a lack of demand for Catholic schools. It's rather indicative of a COVID impact on all schooling. And you pair that with lesson two, which is um, we need to reduce the barriers to entry. So like if a, if, a, if a family comes to us seeking a Catholic education for their child, we need to be talking about removing everything that stands in their way, everything that we are able to remove. I get that we can't remove everything, but removing as many things that stand in their way as possible so that we can say, fantastic, we are so excited to welcome you into the, into the community. So I think that to me, I think that 
those two things, both what KQ said about this is not unique to us and, and lesson two, that there is much we can be doing as Catholic school leaders to capitalize on, on the very real demand, I think, taken together, that, that kind of charts a path forward. I think the other the other thing I would add to that too that adds to this potential opportunity is the fact that we have done a great job kind of in Catholic schools across the country in responding to COVID in terms of being adaptable, being flexible, being innovative, being creative. I think you know, my argument is that I think Catholic schools have been the best um, at, at kind of responding in a way that was um, obviously safety first with students and, and staff and families, but also really trying to get kids back in school uh, as smooth as possible. So kind of on a on a reputational side, that that also adds to that, I think, potential um, potential opportunity for growth um, as well. And I think one piece of data that just speaks to, I think that the opportunity, but then some of the comparison points maybe gets to the the question around choice and access to choice, which I imagine we're getting to a little later, Kevin, is just um, looking at K-8 in the Cleveland um, area, just that urban area, their K-8 enrollment went down, declined about 5.22%. And then the Catholic K to eight schools enrollment increased 3.04%. And I think that too is something that, I mean, I'm hopeful that that means both the access to the voucher for individuals who need it, but then also the comparison point with how are things doing in one particular urban area versus those same Catholic schools in that urban area. I think if we dove into some of that information on the diocesan level, it could lead to other showings or statistics like that. Yeah. And that was actually the last area we're going to talk about, too, is the public funding piece. Because I know, um, talk about that being essential to meeting the demand for equitable access, which I agree 100% about, but that it's not... I think one of the things, too, we always want to remember is that's that's not the magic solution either, right? That we have to make sure totally. that um, obviously high quality um, education taking place, all those different pieces are in place. But that when that's in place, public funding, uh, parental choice, all of those pieces are essential. Um, and I guess the question I would ask, too, because you mentioned vouchers, but I know also there are concerns in some of some um, in Catholic school education about vouchers in terms of of too much regulation coming in. And then we've got obviously things like tax credits in Arizona. Obviously, multiple states have tax credits, but the one that jumps to mind. Um, and then you've got educational savings accounts in, in some states as well um, that seem to have less potential to impact Catholic schools from a regulatory perspective. And so do you have philosophies about that? Um, or are you just thinking, you know, the more opportunities for parents to get support uh, in affording a Catholic school, the better? Yeah, I mean, look, I I completely understand and appreciate the worry about excessive government regulation in um, in Catholic schools. I think it's a real. I think it is something that we need to be attentive to and worried about. I mean, typically when you do, um, as we've seen in healthcare, right? When you do um, entangle 
faith-based service of any kind with government regulation um, complications can arise. And so I think that's a fair worry. I think it is, I think it is something that we can just be vigilant about. And I think it's something that like we shouldn't use that as a barrier while families who who want a Catholic education for their kids are struggling to make ends meet to, to afford one. Um, I think there's plenty that we can be doing. So even just on our end, um, I know one of the things that people worry about where where government oversight can become uh, overzealous is on the accountability side. Like, are we going to require Catholic schools to follow the same accountability guidelines as the traditional public schools? So one of the things that we've been doing over the past three years at partnership schools is creating kind of a, 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 a data dashboard created by Catholic school leaders for Catholic schools as a way of saying, like, it's not that like, I embrace transparency, right? We all embrace transparency. We think we should be really clear about, um, you know, where we are strong and where we are struggling. I think it's fair to say that we want to be in control of our own destiny and what that looks like. But that means I think we can step up to the plate and create those those benchmarks and those measures and help drive that conversation more more aggressively. So, I mean, I guess that's to say, like, yes, I understand the worry, but that worry shouldn't be an excuse. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. And by the way, I love that description. I've, I've said this too, that we need to create the metrics that we want to be measured by because otherwise they might be created for us. And exactly. I think we, we're totally fine with quantitative data and look at our accountability academically and all those pieces. But then we need to recognize Catholic schools bring this kind of intangible culture, community, connectedness piece. Then we can create measures around that to really demonstrate Catholic school effectiveness the way we want to define it. And I think that then um, controls that, um, that narrative. Absolutely. Um, well, this has been a great conversation. Um, we're um, we're um, kind of coming to the end of our time. Um, anything you're thinking about in terms of next school year, or can you tell, um, I mean, obviously it's impossible to predict this, but in terms of um, you know the vaccine coming online and, and getting back to quote unquote normal. And then when we get on the other side, um, what have you kind of gained and learned through um, the last year, year and a, uh, I guess about a year, um, that you want to hold on to? Um, that that's something that you think, gosh, we had a, we were compelled to do this because of COVID, and it's it's actually helped us to to do things more effectively. Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think that. Maybe it's actually just hearkening back to what made Catholics, what has always made Catholic schools great. I think, um, again, one of the reasons I think Catholic schools, you know, 92% of Catholic schools opened to your statistic at the MCEA compared to, you know, 43% of, of, of public and 34% and of charter is because Catholic schools are first and foremost community institutions. And I think that the lesson this year, which is, is just a, a reminder is like that community orientation, that 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 kind of principle of, of solidarity that Kevin you mentioned at the beginning, is our is our bread and butter. And like obviously academic development, forming you know forming children in in knowledge so that they you know they understand like beauty and truth and and goodness as they as they grow into adults. That's critical, um, but that's critical in service of supporting the community. And so I think that as we've worked to stay competitive. 
um, academically, in, you know, in choice markets and in choice environments, this year has been a really important reminder of the like community roots of Catholic education that we we need to you know celebrate and be proud of because I think I think it's it's a model to the nation of of what's possible. KQ, any lessons for you um, through the COVID process that you want to hold on to? I think just to the beginning part where we spoke a little bit about operating schools, both in a choice and a non-choice state, having those be running side by side in the middle of COVID was just illuminating. And I think there are lessons that can be learned on either side, um, both on marketing and being able to pitch what we offer as Catholic schools to eliminate some some of the barriers that sometimes we erect unintentionally. And I think uh, being able to learn from each other across the the nation in choice or non-choice is the thing that I'll, I'll take away. That's great. Well, uh, Kathleen Porter-McGee, Kathleen Quirk from Partnership Schools, thank you so much for your time today. Um, most importantly, thank you for your leadership, uh, for your advocacy, for uh, being just such a strong voice for Catholic schools out there and uh, in your communications and your writings and, and all that you're doing. So thank you so much uh, for your time today. Thank you, Kevin. We've, it's, it's been great and we appreciate all your work. For sure. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks for having us. Sure. And that is NCEA podcast for this week. This is Kevin Baxter, Chief Innovation Officer with NCEA. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time. Bye.